0: Chapter Eight of the Black Motorcar. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christoph. The Black Motorcar, by Harris Berland Chapter Eight. Richard Behag is dead. William Jordison sat in a small room on the first floor of the Red House. It overlooked the eastern marshes, and from his chair he could see the sunlight sparkling on the ocean. The chair was drawn up to a large deal table set close to the window. The table was covered with plans, pencils, rulers, and compasses. He was measuring out fractions of a line with a diagonal scale. The room was bare and comfortless. Its sole furniture consisted of a hard wooden chair, a table, and a row of plain deal shelves heaped up with papers. The walls were decorated with plans of machinery. On the top of the bookshelf was a half-finished working model of a motor car nearly two feet in length. William Jordison was planning, with what had once been part of his daily work, the perfecting of a new invention which would reduce the cost of running a car to almost nothing, which would simplify the machinery, and which would generate a horsepower hitherto undreamed of in the trade. The invention had been abandoned before it had been placed on a practical basis, and it was not until he had given up business that he turned to it once again. It formed some relaxation from the serious purpose of his life. Every now and then he looked up the drawings on the table, and gazed abstractly out of the window, apparently lost in thought. On such occasions the lines round his mouth deepened, and a heavy scowl darkened his forehead. Anyone looking at him during these moments would have said that it was the face of a criminal, animal, brutal, debased in every feature. Finally, he threw the pencil down, tore up the drawing in front of him, and rose to his feet. His playtime was over. He paced up and down the room with knitted brows, and hands clasped behind his back. In a few minutes' time, there was a slow, heavy footstep on the stairs outside. Then the door opened, and a man entered. He was short and thick-set, with a low forehead, bestial mouth, and a sullen, clean-shaven face. Jordison could not stand the sight of a woman in the house. He had three men-servants, and a more unprepossessing trio could scarcely have been chosen for the purpose. They had been selected from the worst types of humanity, and were, in point of fact, three convicts, who had escaped from Portland jail the year before. They served Jordison's purpose, however. Their faithfulness was practically assured, for the terrors of the law still hung over their heads. Jordison's only fear was that they might choose to preserve their secret by killing him. He was prepared for such an emergency. A loaded revolver was always to hand in his pocket by day, under his pillow at night. "'Well, Lip,' he said as the man entered, "'Jeremy's just brought the second post from Gorehaven,' the man replied suddenly, "'holding out a letter in his dirty, muscular fingers. "'Jordison took the letter and glanced at the handwriting. "'A flush came to his haggard face. "'The servant still waited, scowling as though he had received some insult. "'Well, Lip,' said the master of the house, placing the letter in his pocket, "'how are things going on?' "'They make it an odd mess in the garden, and they're damn slow. "'I've been round talking to them, and if I haven't scared them, they quite right Lev, Jordison broke in. "'Any news from gore heaven? "'This damned election's driving them all crazy. i collared Jeremy and asked him to vote straight and true, "'and filled him up with drink. "'Drink?' Jordison said sharply. "'Jermy? Drunk? I'll have no drunken blackguards about this house. "'Drunk, Lord bless you. There ain't a drink made that could fuddle old Jeremy in the afternoon. "'His head's as clear as a blooming bell. Swelp me, that'll do,' Jordison said sternly. "'Have those castings come yet from Sheffield?' "'Those that ain't in the mud?' the man replied with a grin and he told the story of the accident in a few words, liberally sprinkled with high-coloured epithets. Jordison appeared to take no interest in the narrative, however he made note on a piece of paper. See that I get the rest of the castings tomorrow, Lip, he said quietly. You may go. The man went, but when he reached the door his master called him back. Have they begun excavating for the bed of the engine-house, Lib? Not as I knows of. Your place is in such a blooming mess and they might be going to dig a coal mine. Well, tell Bisouth's foreman that I want it done at once, and that everything else must be postponed until it is finished. He has the plans. The engine will be here next week. All right, Governor. "'I'll make him jump,' and the man slouched towards the door. "'And be civil with these people, Lip,' Jordison continued. "'They're independent folk, and I don't want them to go off and leave me in the lurch.' "'All right, Governor,' the man replied without turning round. "'I'll be as sweet as jam.' The door closed behind him with a crash, and the sound of his clumsy feet died away on the uncarpeted staircase. Georderson smiled grimly. A nasty customer, he said to himself. I expect he had all the benefit of the doubt when the jury brought in a verdict of manslaughter, but he'll do for the present. He walked over to the window and sat on the table. Then he pulled the letter out of his pocket, opened it, and perused it carefully. It ran as follows. Dear sir, we have at last obtained some clue to the movements of Mr. Richard Behag. It is certain that he embarked as a common seaman on the brig Valletta, bound for Vilpariso, and that he left the ship at the port. Further search will be expensive, and it will entail a journey to South America. Are you prepared to go on? It will probably cost you at least one thousand pounds, but we will cut down all expenses as much as possible. We enclose our account to date. A cheque will oblige. Your obedient servants, Briggs and Warlock. One thousand pounds, he murmured. And then he laughed, and sitting down at the table, filled in a telegram form. Briggs and Warlock, 21 Ship Street, Strand, proceed with search. Spare no necessary expense. Jordison. Then he rang the bell, and glanced at the account. It came to three hundred forty-seven pounds, ten shillings and three pence, of which more than half had been spent on the useless search for Mrs. Delamoth. He smiled as he read some of the items. Little trivial details of daily expenditure, pennies, sixpences, half-crowns, stretching over pages and pages, and mounting up with extraordinary rapidity. If it costs me all I have, he said to himself, I will see it through. There's a lot more money to be had in the world. In five minutes' time, Lip entered. Have the horse put in the dog art at once, Lip, said Jordison, and get Jeremy to drive you into Gorehaven. This telegram must go at once. Look sharp. He gave the man the telegram, and the latter left, mumbling something to himself. When he had gone, Jordison paced up and down the room. His face was flushed, and his eyes sparkled with unwanted brilliancy. "'If I could only find him,' he murmured, "'if I could only find him, it might yet save me from this other search, and the duty that lies at the end of it.' Jordison knew well that love for his son was the only redeeming trait in his character, and this alone "'could drag him from the path he wished to tread. "'The room seemed stifling, and he longed for the fresh air. "'He went downstairs, and crossing the garden, "'which looked like a part of the London County Council improvements, "'made his way to the far end of the knoll. "'The western sky was ablaze with crimson and gold, "'and the dreary marshes which stretched for miles round the red house "'had acquired a strange beauty from the sunset.' It was just past high tide on the distant coast, and every creek and pool and gully was full of water as far as the eye could reach. The unsightly mud was concealed with a garment that reflected all the glory of the sky. The barrenness of the land was clothed in a golden haze. Its very loneliness harmonized with the quiet of the even tide. The whole land breathed of peace. A few plovers flapped slowly from place to place, and their plaintive cries were the only sounds to break the silence. Yet there was no peace in the heart of the man who gazed abstractly across the marshes to the sea. Despair, revenge, the memory of those years spent in the lowest depths of hell, a brief thrill of hope at the news he had received that afternoon, all these were in his heart, but there was no peace. Half a mile up the creek, the sails of a yacht swelled in the faint west breeze, and seemed like the wings of some great white bird gliding over the golden waters. As it came nearer, Jordison began to regard it with interest, and wondered why it had sailed so far up the creek. It was drifting down with the wind and tide, but it would scarcely make the sea before dark. Nearer the boat came, and still nearer, till Jordison could see the faces of the two men on the deck. One was at the tiller, and the other was loosing a jib halyard from its cleat. As they came opposite the house, the bulging balloon jib came fluttering down in a crumpled heap of canvas, and a second later came the rattling of the anchor-chain as it ran swiftly over the bows the man at the helm loosed the tiller and hauled in the main sheet the boat swung around with the tide till her nose faced the west in less than 10 minutes the men on board had stowed sail and made everything snug for the night jordison frowned and rising to his feet walked slowly down the slope towards the creek he was not pleased at the idea of the yacht anchoring under his windows before he reached the edge of the water one of the men had put off in the dinghy, and was making it fast to the old post on the bank. Jordison stopped, and leaned against the black-tarred palings of his garden. He had no desire to converse with strangers. The man, however, crossed the road and came straight up to him. "'Are you Mr. Jordison of the Red House?' he asked abruptly. "'I am Mr. Jordan,' was the curt reply. Well, I've got a couple of hundred cases here, pitched into the mud the day before yesterday. Suppose you have heard all about it. You seem to take it coolly, though. No one's been near them till we decided to take them on board this morning. They were nearly out of sight in the mud, but we made fast to them and waited till high tide. Then we pulled them aboard with our anchor winch. You can have them when you like, but you must send someone on board to help get them off. I am Arthur Holmes. I am much indebted to you, Mr. Holm, Jordison replied. Will you come into the house? We are a little unsettled as yet, but still, no thanks, Home replied. I have got to cook our dinner yet. My man's a duffer at the household work, but, by God, you should see him at the tiller, in dirty weather. There's not a man on this coast to touch him, I can tell you. "'Have you got any men about that can lend a hand with the cases when the tide runs out? "'I reckon we shall be high and dry, then. "'You will be stranded shortly after midnight, Mr. Holm. "'There is only a foot of water at the creek at low tide, and I suppose you draw five. "'I have three men here, and I will send them across. "'It is a full moon to-night. "'Between the lot of us we ought to get the cases ashore. "'How's the electioneering going, Mr. Holm?' "'We are quite satisfied,' Holmes replied. "'By the by, I suppose you haven't a vote. "'Too late to get on the register, eh?' "'I have no vote,' Jordison said with a faint smile. "'But if I had, I'd give it to your party. "'I'm of your way of thinking.' "'Well, you might do what you can for us. "'You don't speak, I suppose?' "'No more than I can help,' Jordison replied grimly. "'No, I am afraid I cannot be of much service to you.' I have a few tenants in Eastwick, and I'll see that they vote for you right enough. "'It is good of you,' Arthur Home replied. "'I have got the interests of this part of the world at heart. "'Landowners don't understand these fisher folk. "'I do. "'Kai seems a decent sort of chap, but I don't think he'll get in. "'I have been a sailor myself, and served before the mast. "'It's a damn rough life, but it's a good life, mark you.' and it moulds good men out of rotten material. Well, I will go and look after the dinner, and will turn in till you come on board. Good night. Good night, Mr. Home. Jordison replied with sadness in his voice. This rough-bearded young fellow had brought with him the breath of the salt seas. It would have been hard to find a greater contrast to the general atmosphere of the Red House. To Jordison it brought back the days of his own youth. And the young man's voice touched some hidden chord in his hard, callous heart. Then a sudden idea seized him, and hurrying after Holmes' retreating figure, he came up to him as he was untying the dinghy's painter. Mr. Holmes, he said quietly, excuse me asking you a question, but you might be able to give me some information. Certainly, Holmes replied with a smile, if I am able to do so. You have been a sailor and mixed with seafaring folk. Have you ever come across a young fellow of the name of Richard Behag? Arthur Holmes did not answer. His back was to the west, where a faint glow of crimson still lingered. His face was in the shadow, but to Jordison it seemed as if the young man remembered the name and was trying to recall the owner of it. Do you happen to recollect the name, Mr. Home? Jordan continued. "'Yes,' the young man replied. "'I certainly recollect the name. "'But for the moment—' "'Ah, I have it. "'Of course, I remember now.' "'If you know anything of him,' said Jordison, "'I should be much obliged by the information. "'I mean him no harm.' "'It would not be much good if you did,' Holmes answered. "'For Richard B. Hag is dead.' "'Dead,' repeated Jordison in a low voice. "'Are you sure? Have you proof?' And he caught the young man by the arm and peered anxiously into his shadowed face. "'I am sure,' Holmes replied. "'He died in Valpreso. "'I remember the story now. It made something of a stir. "'He was drowned.' "'Drowned?' cried Jordison. "'Are you sure?' Holmes shrugged his shoulders. Yes, he replied. Drowned while yachting off Valparaiso. I should not inquire too closely if you were a friend of Behag's. The whole story is not very creditable to him. You will excuse me now, Mr. Jordison. I am hungry. I will see you later. And stepping into the dinghy, he put the raw locks in place and loosed the painter. Jordison did not stir. He wished to question the young man further, but home had cut the conversation short. He kept his eyes on the brown-bearded face, which seemed all red and gold in the light of the setting sun. It was hard and stern. He wished he could see his eyes, but the young man had chipped his skulls and was gazing at the bottom of the boat. Twelve o'clock, said Jordan pleasantly. The young man looked up and smiled. That'll be all right he answered. "Goodbye, till then. Jordison had taken a keen look at the man's eyes, and they had fallen guiltily from his glance. He turned back and walked slowly to the house. Dicky, dead, he kept on repeating to himself. Well, Briggs and Warlock will soon find out for me in Valparaiso, and if it is true, I shall not lose sight of you, my young man. You know more of my boy's death than you have told me. I will find out the truth, if it cost me every penny I have in the world. He turned and shook his fist at the yacht in the stream. Then he went in and stumbled up to the small room that looked to the east, groping his way as though he could not see. When he reached the table by the window, he sank down in the chair and buried his face in his hands. For ten minutes he did not move his mind went back through all the years of agony and despair to the morning when he had last seen his son he could almost hear his own feeble imitations of the birds and animals of a farmyard what did the fowl say papa i forgot cluck 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 and cock doodle doo the wretched man rose to his feet and clenched his hands if dickie's dead he murmured to himself, "'There is only one thing left to me in life.' He sat down at the table and drafted a long telegram to Briggs and Warlock to be dispatched first thing in the morning. The burden of it all was that no expense was to be spared to find proof of Richard Behag's death. At midnight, Jordison and his three servants went down to the creek. It was a dark night, but there was sufficient light to see the yacht had moved from her anchorage. Lip threw the rays of his lantern over the mud and across the narrow channel to the farther shore. The two cases lay half a dozen yards from the bank. They were still wet and had evidently been thrown overboard into the water, which had gone down, and left them on the sloping bed of the creek. It was clear that, for some reason or other, Arthur Holm had taken advantage of the falling tide to haul up his anchor and drift down the channel. The business had an ugly look in Jordison's eyes, but he said nothing to his men, and they all four worked hard to get the cases onto the bank. They were embedded in two feet of slime, and the men found the task too much for them. After several vain efforts they gave up the task, and breaking the case open, "'transferred the contents piecemeal to the shore. "'William Jordison toiled furiously, "'and did as much work as the other three men combined. "'He had an idea that severe physical exertion "'would distract his thoughts, "'but he found it impossible to get rid of the subject "'that was uppermost in his mind. "'And all the time he was going to and fro through the mud, "'black to his knees, Sweating with the burden of some great piece of iron, he was wondering why Arthur Holm had left so suddenly. By the time the work was over, he decided that the young man had shirked another meeting and any further questions, and he strongly suspected that Arthur Holm knew more of the death of Richard Behag in Valparaiso than he cared to disclose. End of chapter 8 Recording by Christoph